Well, good morning, First Baptist. It is so good to see you and so good to be able to worship with you this morning. It's always uh, a joy to come back to Rock Hill. This is a place that our family really considers to be a second home. And uh, your pastor has been and still continues to be a great friend of mine and a great mentor. And I'm so thankful for him and for the staff here at First Baptist and for you and your commitment to God's mission, uh, both in how you give generously through the cooperative program to fund what the Lord is doing here in South Carolina and all over the world uh, through your giving to the cooperative program, through your giving to the Janie Chapman State Missions Offering. You need to know this, that thousands of middle school and high school students had a summer camp experience where hundreds of them made decisions in their relationship with the Lord. You need to know that because of your giving, South Carolina has the second most college students coming to faith in Christ and being sent on mission in all of the United States, which is amazing for a little old South Carolina, right? Yeah. Over 13,000 people were saved and baptized in South Carolina Baptist churches over the last year. Um, 600 churches increased in their baptisms. Almost 200 churches doubled in their baptisms last year. And all of that's happening, again, as we're cooperating and we're working together for the sake of God's mission here in our state and around the world. And right now, because of your generous giving, there's about 40 church planters all over South Carolina that are receiving support as they launch new churches to reach lost people, people that right now don't have a connection with Jesus or his church throughout our state. And so I want to say to you, thank you for your generosity, for your partnership in mission. And I also want to say thank you for the example that you're setting, particularly with your intentionality during this Christmas season. Uh, I love the way that you have focused your hearts and, and your attention really on the evangelistic opportunity that Christmas brings about because it certainly is one of those times of year that folks are the most open to spiritual things, to spiritual conversations, to weightier matters of their life. And the reason why is because of the reality for all of us that, that we all are looking for hope, we're all looking for life, and we know if we try to find that in us, right? It's here today, gone tomorrow. If we fi try to find that in some trend of the world, it's here today and gone tomorrow. There's just no certain foundation. There's no, there's no trust that we can really build our lives on apart from a relationship with Jesus. And so during this time of year, when we talk about the hope, the, the promise of God's faithfulness in sending his son Jesus to live in our place, to die in our place, to be resurrected, to conquer sin, to conquer death, that we might know him, that we might be forgiven of our sins, and that we might have true, new, eternal, abundant life. That is a hope that we all need to be reminded of, right? Not just at Christmas, but every day, right? But it's especially during this season an opportunity to live that and to share that and present that with power, with enthusiasm, and with joy to those in our community that haven't heard it. The reminder of why it is so important that we focus our efforts in this direction was, was made very clear to me and a very clear reminder that grabbed my heart just a few weeks ago. I had the privilege of serving as a, a trustee member at Southeastern Seminary up in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And our trustee meeting in October, we were uh, touring some, some various buildings in, on campus and seeing some work that had, that had taken place. And we were in uh, the building that hosts... Uh, the Center for Great Commission Study. 
there at Southeastern, specifically focusing on training the next generation of church planters and, and missionaries that will go out into all the earth to take the gospel to those who have never heard or have little to no access to the gospel. And while we were in the sort of main rotunda building, the, the, the middle of the building, the rotunda area, they had a large flat screen television, kind of like the one you stood in line for at Best Buy on Friday, right? Um, and, and they had a large flat screen television there, but, but it wasn't showing any television show or it wasn't showing a sermon video. It, it was just this graphic that updated by the minute with numbers counting to that point the number of, of the world population that had been added to that day through new births. And the number to the minute of people around the world who had heard and responded to the gospel. The number of people to the minute around the world who had heard but had not responded to the gospel. And the number around the world updated to the minute of those who had little to no access to the gospel. At the point that we were standing there, it was 11 a.m. And at that point, I took a picture with, with, with my phone. At that point at 11 a.m., the world's population had been added to by 128,000 people. Up to that point in the day, 11 a.m., 128,000 people. Of those, by, by statistical analysis, that would mean that 12,000 people around the world had heard and responded to the gospel and placed their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. All right, that's good news, right? When one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. And we as the body of Christ rejoice, right? But here were the two numbers that startled me the most. That meant 30,000 people statistically had heard the gospel. They'd had the opportunity to hear the gospel. But, but they, for whatever reason, did not respond and did not place their faith in Jesus. But this was the number that grabbed my heart because this was the number that was changing the most in comparison to the addition of the world's population. That meant 86,000 people out of those 128,000 that had been added to the world's population on that day by 11 a.m. were born into a place, a nation, a tribe, a tongue, a people group that had little to no access to the gospel. Places and people groups were where there is no gospel witness. There is no First Baptist Church. There is no Christmas Eve candlelight service to invite an unchurched or unsaved friend to because there is no anything to invite anybody to because there is no access to the gospel for those people. But this is not just a those people and those people groups and those parts of the world thing, right? The reality of our state, and I've shared this with you before a couple of years ago, the reality of our state is right now three out of four people that you and I lock eyes with and rub shoulders with on a day-to-day -day basis in the state of South Carolina right now do not have a relationship with any, any, any evangelical gospel-preaching church, which means most of those 3.6 million, we can assume, have no relationship with Jesus. That's in our state. That's in our state. Just recently, I met a young man as we had the opportunity to spend some time together over the course of a day, we, we spent a couple hours together. 
And as we're just getting to know one another, he's finding out about what I do, I'm finding out about what he does. He then says to me something like this. So, so does that mean you, you tell people about Jesus? I, yes, in a way, that's what I do, yes. But not just because it's my job. Hopefully it's because I'm a follower of Jesus, right? And he says, can you tell me about Jesus? Because I honestly don't know that I've really ever heard the truth about him. That was a young man who has spent all of his life living in the state of South Carolina. 20 plus years. And had never heard or understood the gospel. Right? That's why what you're doing is so important. It's why what you're doing is so important during this Christmas season. Because there's people in neighborhoods throughout York County that right now do not know who Jesus is because no one has ever shared him with them. Just as there are billions of people in the world who have never heard his name. And it's wise, I was talking with your pastor about today and, and, and maybe where I would focus our time and where the Lord may lead us in his word, that God led me to this passage in Matthew chapter 9. If you've got a copy of God's word with you or you've got your phone or your tablet, has got the Bible on, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 35 down through chapter 10, verse 5. For a lot of you, this will be a familiar passage, particularly one phrase, um, that if you've been around church for a while, uh, you've probably heard a sermon far better than the one you'll hear today on this. Uh, You have probably participated in a Bible study on this. You may have even prayed in this direction. Perhaps even during this focus uh, for this Christmas season, you have spent some time on this verse. I know that prayer is a huge part of this emphasis, and so it would make perfect sense if you have spent some time maybe studying Uh, some elements or aspects of this passage, but this is where the Lord led me because this is Jesus speaking about the very thing we're talking about right now, and he's using language that that is very vivid, it is very emotional, it is very graphic, and in this I think that we are able to capture and see God's heart towards those that don't know him and his passion for people to know him and his desire to work through his people so that people all over the world would have the opportunity to see here and respond to the gospel. If you've got your Bibles open, I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, down through chapter 10, verse 5. You follow along, and then we'll come back and make a few notes um, out of this passage. The Scripture says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then the first part of verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. There are four things that I want us to see out of this passage that help us understand 
I believe the significance of the season that you're in, the opportunity that's ahead of us, the challenge that is ahead of us as we seek to be God's people living on his mission, making him known here at home and around the world. The first thing that I want you to see is, is I want you to see God's heart. I want you to see God's heart. In verse 35 and the first part of verse 36, what we see is that Jesus is doing what Jesus did. He's going from place to place, from village to village. He is proclaiming the gospel. That is, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching about how God has fulfilled his promise to his people to send the Messiah, that he is the Messiah, that God has kept that, that promise, all those promises that he made in what we know as the Old Testament, these folks that have been very familiar with. And so Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom has come and is coming. And he was there as fulfillment of God's promise to send a Messiah. But it wasn't just that he was proclaiming okay, the good news. He was also demonstrating the good news. He was demonstrating God's kingdom and healing all of the diseases and, and performing all of these miracles. And we have to remember that, that that was the point of everything Jesus ever taught, every miracle he ever performed, every healing of a disease. It was all for the purpose of declaring and demonstrating that he is God and there is none other like him. And so as he's going from place to place, he is giving this clear demonstration of his power that he is God and there is none other. Now, as we're seeing this in verse 35 and verse 36, we're seeing this demonstration of his power. We're seeing and hearing him declare his power and declare his authority that he is the king and his kingdom has come, right? And is coming. As we're seeing that, we also see this. That when Jesus looked out at the crowds, because y'all know, anywhere Jesus went, anytime Jesus did anything, a crowd gathered around, right? People couldn't stay away from him. And as Jesus looked out upon the crowd that had gathered to hear him teach, or gathered maybe because they had heard about some of the miracles that had taken place, and there was a curiosity there to see and hear what this Jesus was doing. As he looked out upon this crowd, the scripture says that he had compassion upon them. He had compassion upon them because, and we'll talk about this more in just a second, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion, in the original language of the New Testament Greek here, that word compassion speaks to a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning sort of agony that Jesus experienced as he looked out upon this crowd and saw all of these faces, all of these men, women, and children that had gathered to hear him, that had gathered to see him. And he looked out upon them and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And as he looked at the thousands that would have been there, he felt this gut-wrenching, stomach-turning compassion over this crowd that he saw. Have you ever been watching the news, or have you ever been scrolling through social media on your phone, or have you ever picked up a newspaper and read a story or seen a story that was so heartbreaking that you just felt your stomach turn on the inside? Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever maybe experienced that personally in your own life? Maybe a family member, maybe something that that took place even amongst family in your own home. Maybe maybe something happened that just had you so perplexed and so broken, maybe even so frustrated, maybe even just the other day as you gathered for Thanksgiving 
that there was a family member there that, that you've been praying for and you've been agonizing over because you long for them to, to come back into a right relationship with Jesus or to trust Him as Savior and Lord, right? And you feel your insides just tremble and quake and turn because of the emotion that you feel for that that person or that family or that story that you've read about or that place where some terrible thing has happened. If you ever want to know what God thinks about people that don't know Him, there's your picture. Our God is not shaking His fist at lost people. But our God looks at the nations. He looks at 3.6 million in our state. He looks at the billions in the world who have never heard His name. And He doesn't shake His fist, but He feels a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning, broken compassion. For those that don't know Him. Oh, that our hearts would break and our stomachs would turn for what makes our God's heart break and stomach turn. Why was it that Jesus responded with such compassion? That's the second thing that we need to see. Is we need to see the true condition of lostness. We need to see the true condition of lostness. Second part of verse 36 where Jesus uses that phrase, sheep without a shepherd. Now in that day and age, that, that imagery made a lot more sense and people could grab onto it. I'm guessing there's not a lot of sheep herders here today. You may have some sheep. Uh, there's a farm not far from where we live in Lexington. We drive past it um, uh, routinely throughout the week going to the church that we're a part of and going to the golf course with my girls and going various places, the grocery store. We drive past it and there's some sheep. Uh, that are in this in this field. It's an odd thing. You don't you're not used to seeing that, right? But sheep without a shepherd. That's that's a dangerous position for a sheep to be in. You know why? H- have you ever seen a sheep's defense mechanism? You ever heard them bark? You ever heard them growl? <laughs> you ever seen them spit fire out of their mouths? You know? No. They have none of the above, right? What, what, what a sheep has for a defense mechanism goes something like this. Man. <laughs> it's about the extent of it. And the other side of that is sheep aren't very smart. So they're, they're defenseless. And they're dumb. And a sheep without a shepherd is going to wander off from the crowd. They, they are prone to wander away from the flock. And as they wander, they're just minding their own business. They're just, you know, eating grass and doing their thing. But as they wander without the guidance and the protection of a shepherd, they wander into thorns, bushes that they, they can't get out of. They fall into ditches and even off of the sides of mountains and cliffs because they can't see the edge of it and there's not a shepherd to, to bring them back they are vulnerable to the attack of a coyote that wants nothing more than to capture and strangle and destroy that sheep a sheep without a shepherd most often winds up dead either by their own wandering or the attack of an animal that wants to kill them. 
And so when Jesus says that this crowd that he saw was like sheep without a shepherd, what he looked at and saw were men, women, and children who were wandering from addiction to addiction trying to find life, from relationship to relationship trying to find life, from possession to possession, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from pursuit to pursuit, trying to find life, but only coming back with something that feels way more like death. He saw sheep without a shepherd that were dead in their trespasses and their sins with no spiritual life in them whatsoever. That's why the next phrase, harassed and helpless, really, really is a graphic phrase. Harassed and helpless is benign compared to what Jesus meant, what he was communicating. Harassed and helpless communicated this graphic image of a dead animal or or a severely injured animal that cannot defend itself, that is being picked and ripped apart by an animal that's on the prowl. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a picture of what it really looks like to be lost. That apart from Christ, we wander. We wander off on our own, stumbling into relationships, stumbling into addiction, stumbling into pursuit, stumbling into whatever it might be, trying to find life, trying to find hope, trying to find value, trying to find worth, trying to find identity, and only coming up short And all the while, what looked like it would give us life gives us something that feels way more like death. And the brokenness and the guilt and the shame just eats away, eats away, eats away, eats away at our souls. And because there's no spiritual life in us, the scripture tells us that we're all dead in our trespasses and our sins. We are completely helpless on our own to do anything about it. That is the picture that Jesus saw of what it meant to be lost. A sheep without a shepherd, wandering, dead, being ripped apart by sin, by brokenness, by guilt, by shame, and powerless to do anything about it. Now that should break our hearts followers of Jesus for two reasons. One, because that's the condition of those that we know that are close to us but far from God. That's what's going on. But the second reason why that should break us is because apart from Christ, that was you and me too. And apart from Christ, it still would be you and me. And so we see God's heart This gut-wrenching, stomach-turning compassion for Jesus. We see why. Because of the condition of lostness. Sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. Third thing to see is to see the problem. To see the problem as if lostness was not enough. The depth and the depravity of lostness. Here's what Jesus says in verse 37. He says to the, the disciples, he says, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. 
There are plenty of people who need to know the gospel, Jesus says. There's 3.6 million people in South Carolina that need to know about me. And because I see them as sheep without a shepherd, I have a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning compassion for them to know me. There's 2 billion people in the world who have never even heard my name. There's five plus billion people in the world with little to no access to the gospel. And I have a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning compassion for them to know me. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, those who are willing to go to their neighborhoods, those who are willing to go to the nations for the sake of the gospel, the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. The harvest is plentiful. There are billions who are sheep without a shepherd. But too many of the workers have been lulled to sleep by comfort and convenience and security. I heard it said once. I don't know who said this originally. I've heard it quoted several times. I've heard it said different ways several times. And every time I hear it, it just grabs my heart. That the only thing worse than being lost is knowing that you're lost and also knowing that nobody is looking for you. And that's not talking about spiritual lostness. It's talking about physical lostness. But the application is obvious, right? The only thing worse than being lost is being lost with no one Looking for you. May we as followers of Jesus. May we as South Carolina Baptists. May you as the First Baptist Church of Rock Hill. Be a people who are always looking. Every day when you drive in your neighborhood. Every day when you go to school, every day when you go to work, every day when you go do what you do, may we be a people who are always looking. May we as faith families, as churches all across the state and specifically in local areas and especially fast-growing, thriving areas like the one where God has placed you right now, May we unite our our forces and our resources and our hearts and our minds and our energy and our effort all in the direction of making sure that every man, woman, and child that calls South Carolina home will absolutely have the opportunity to hear, see, and respond to the gospel. May the numerical goal that gets us up in the morning and keeps us up at night be the number zero. That number representing the number of people who are left in this community in York County that haven't heard the gospel. You with me? That wherever there might be people in this community that don't know Jesus, whatever neighborhood they live in, whatever school they go to, whatever place of business they they work within, may it be that God in His grace and His mercy would put somebody as a follower of Jesus right next to them 
And may we then be faithful to be a people who are always looking so that every man, woman, and child would have the opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. That's a big task. So how do we get after it? Fourth and final thing I want you to see is I want you to see then our calling. I want you to see our calling. In verse 38, after Jesus says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few, he says, therefore, here's the plan, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then, carrying on to verse 1, we've got a chapter and verse break right there, but there's not a break in the action. You know what I'm saying? There's not a commercial break there. It's not, you know, next day or six months later, dot, 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 you know, and then Jesus gathers them up and it's all flowing right there all together. So Jesus says laborers are few, harvest is plentiful. He says to the disciples, here's what I want you to do. Pray earnestly for the Lord to send out workers into his harvest. And then he gathers them together in verse 1. Matthew lists them by name. And then in verse 5, what does it say? These 12, Jesus then sent out. Here's our calling. This is our calling. is to pray and go. It's to pray and go. Jesus said to pray earnestly. That word earnestly is a very emotional word. That is, this is not a flighty, check in a box, I'm just kind of praying a prayer and throwing a stick in the fire and just, you know, whatever, and then I'll, off I go. This, this is a gut-wrenching, stomach-turning, on my face, weeping, pouring out my heart in prayer. God, would you save? And God, would you send? It's pouring out our hearts for that one that God has burdened us with that's close to us, but far from him that we're praying for, that we, that we wrote on the ornament, that we want to invite back to Christmas services here at First Baptist. We are pouring our hearts out before the Lord for that person. But not just for that person, because we recognize there's tens of thousands of people that live in Rock Hill that don't know Jesus. There's millions in South Carolina. There's billions in the world. And so we pour our hearts out in prayer for the salvation of those that don't know him. But that's not all we're praying for. We're also praying for more workers for the harvest. We're praying, Lord, use me in your mission. We're praying, Lord, use my family, whatever that means. Use my family. Lord, use our home. Use our dinner table, whatever that means. Lord, use my small group. Lord, use the church down the street. I want you to be encouraged by this today. I was texting early this morning with Chad Merrill, the pastor who followed me at North Rock Hill Church, who was doing an unbelievable job shepherding that faith family forward in the mission that God has given them, joining with churches like yours. I want you to know this. I had no idea. I just texted Chad this morning, hey man, I'm praying for him. I'm going to be in Rock Hill today. I love you. And I'm just praying for what the Lord's doing there. He texted back. He said, this is crazy because in our services today, we're praying for First Baptist Rock Hill. He said, would you tell them that? I said, you better believe I'm telling them that. Right? That's what Jesus means. This is not about any man's kingdom this is about the kingdom of jesus this is about the gospel this is about people that don't know him and so we're not praying lord grow our church we hope that happens we're praying lord grow your kingdom 
and use us and use North Rock Hill and use Northside and we just keep on going down the list, right? Because if every lost people in every lost person in Rock Hill decided to go to church today, there's not room for them in here, right? There's not room for them at North Rock Hill. I can tell you that for sure. There's not room. If everybody decided to go, they're not going to one church. But Lord, would you use your church, the church, big C, throughout this community, right? So we're praying for salvation, and we're, and we're praying for workers. But it doesn't stop at prayer. Because then the very ones Jesus said, I want you to pray, he then sent. And that word sent in verse 5 of chapter 10, it's literally communicating Jesus thrusted them. Or even like he shoved them, or I heard somebody say, this really works for us here in the south, he drop kicked them (laughs) out into the harvest, right? It's not just pray, it's pray and go. That as you pray, you go, and as you go, you pray, because here's the reality. We can't pray without going. We can't pray, Lord, send workers and not go ourselves. Lord, save people that don't know you and not go ourselves. We can't do that. But we also can't go without praying. Because if we go without praying, it's all about us, right? We're going on our strength. And we know that's futile and that's limited and that's going to run out pretty quick, right? So we can't pray without going. We can't go without praying. So what do we do? We pray and we go. In 1857, there was a businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere. The Lord began to work in his life. Lamphere came to faith in Jesus. And in his newfound faith, he was so passionate, he wanted to invite and share the gospel with everybody. He starts inviting people to church, starts trying to share the gospel with people. In the midst of his effort, a church there, a Dutch Reformed church in Manhattan, heard about what he was doing, and they invited him to come to their church and be a part of, of, their, of their church and to lead their weekly visitation program. And so Lamphere jumps into this, and, and they're going, he's going around, it's basically just him by himself. He's going around to all these business people and all these apartment communities. And, and, you know, as you all know, in Manhattan and even in 1857, everything builds up and there's just floors and floors and people and people and people. And it was wearing him out. And convicted by this passage, he, he knew that if it was all up to him, it's not going to happen. We needed to gather people together. We needed to pray. And so he sends out this, this invitation, this flyer to thousands of people, puts them up in businesses wherever he could, inviting folks to to gather with him on September the 23rd, 1857 at the Dutch Reformed Church to have a noon hour of prayer on that Wednesday. 12 o'clock comes, nobody's there. Lamphere begins to pray. A few people trickle in about 12.30. By the end of the hour, there were six people there joining him to pray. The next week, About 20 people came on September the 30th. The next week, on October the 7th, about 30 to 40 people came. They asked if they could move to praying daily. They began praying daily at that time. And on October the 10th, all the financial markets, everything completely crashed. In the weeks that followed, tens of thousands of people began coming to these noonday prayer meetings, began to spread to different locations throughout the city, throughout all of Manhattan, throughout all of New York, people in places like Boston and 
St. Louis and Chicago and Philadelphia began to catch word of what was going on. And similar prayer meetings began to crank up in all of those major cities. And these were meetings where people came and they prayed, but they also heard the gospel. And people were, were responding and being saved to the point that within two years of that initial prayer meeting that had six people gather on September the 23rd, over one million people had been won to Jesus. And it started with a businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere who came to Christ and was so burdened for lost people that he prayed and he went and he led others to do the same. Here's the question for you this morning, First Baptist Rock Hill. Who is York County's Jeremiah Lamphere? And could he or she be sitting in this room today? Who will pray?